The passage tonight is Philippians chapter 3, 20 through 21, and Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now if you will turn to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. These are the words of our Lord. (laughs) Hey, um, you know, where you think you're going has everything to do with the way in which you live your life today. Uh, I heard one preacher actually use a great illustration to help put this together. I want you to imagine that there are two uh, young men who move uh, to Atlanta right after their graduation to take a job with a financial institution uh, right after graduation. Uh, The work, though, they find when they get there is awful, terrible. Um, They work in dark, sort of closed spaces, Uh, with just endless, mundane details, um, disrespect from all your fellow employees who, by the way, you think are absolute idiots, Um, you know, unreasonable hours that are given to them, and just a ridiculous workload dominates every single day. This is every single day of their experience. The difference, though, between these two men is that the first man is told that after he goes through this for a year, he's going to be paid the sum of $15,000. The second man, though, is told that he's going to be paid $15 million. That's the difference between these two men. Now look, fast forward to about three weeks on the job, okay, where the first man looks and says, I can't take it. These conditions are horrible. I can't do it. The second man says what, though? Eh, I don't know. It's not quite that bad. Truth is, we could do worse. I think we'll stick it out. (laughs) In other words, your ability to face life's pain in the present is directly proportional to the level of glory that you expect yourself to be able to experience at the end of time. Did you catch that? That is, how much you're willing to put up with now, the pain and the struggle you're willing to put up now, has everything to do with what you think is coming at the end. Look, y'all, we come tonight to the end of our study in the Apostles' Creed, where we've been asking this question, why believing matters? And we're talking about what a Christian believes tonight in the future, where she's headed in her future. And what we're going to find is, is that the, Christian, the way in which to help correct a lot of the struggles we have in our Christian life is the same way that you correct a bad golf swing. Anybody will tell you, 
and I have a bad golf swing, so I'll be the first one to tell you this, that one of the things that's important to grasp is where that golf club not necessarily sets up, not necessarily where it is in your backswing or even at the top, but a lot of times you got to know where that golf swing finishes, and it corrects a lot that's going on in the now. That's what I want us to look at. Where is it that the Apostles' Creed says that we are headed? What's the destiny that waits in store for God's people? Two things. I want you to look, first of all, at your future body, and then second of all, your future residence. Just two points tonight. Don't let that throw you off. I know you're used to the threes, but hey, buckle up. It'll just be fun. Okay, your future body. Look, y'all. Did you notice how weird Philippians 3.20 that James just read uh, opens? He opens up and says, listen to this, our citizenship is in heaven. Present tense. Shouldn't it read our citizenship will be in heaven? That's what you'd expect, right? But I want to suggest to you tonight that Paul is teaching the early church, and of course that means us as well, to think of themselves now in terms of what they will be then. Did you catch that? In many ways, this is a huge element of, of Paul's thinking. He will say all these things that are true. Not only that, he'll say in the book of Ephesians that right now we dwell in the heaven, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to begin to think of your life now like it will be then. Your citizenship, that is your, your home country, your, your native identity, is in what you will be, not in what you are now. And I think this is absolutely powerful when you really think about it. Look, two things about your future body that people oftentimes mistake, and it'll change the way you think about stuff. We were talking about this during junior Bible study today, so bear with me for the repetition. First of all, Christians oftentimes miss the fact that it is our bodies that will be resurrected. When in the creed we look up and say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, that means that eventually you will spend out the rest of your days, if you know Christ, in a body, a physical body, this mortal coil. <laughs> but it'll be different in that sense. But here's the thing. Very rarely do we believe this. You want to know why? I get a persistent question, and many of you have heard me talk about this before. We talked about this last year a good bit. But oftentimes I'll have people come up to me and ask me about the nature of heaven. You know, Les, what does the Bible teach about heaven? Because I've always wondered, are we going to know each other in heaven? In other words, will we know that it's like that you're you and that I'm me? Will I have any awareness of that when I'm in heaven? What's the assumption behind that question? The assumption is that when I get there, I won't have a body. That is, we'll just simply be and I got in trouble for saying the word wafting too much today, <laughs> that will be these disembodied spirits sort of floating, is that better? Floating throughout eternity with no body and no way to recognize each other, but that's supposed to be some eternal bliss. No. The Bible actually says that eventually you're going to get a new body, a brand new body that's going to be, that, that's physical in nature, that'll be capable of these things. Look, a lot of times we go to funerals, and I understand that funerals are tragic places, but we go to those funerals and we look at sort of, uh, especially when the casket is open, and we see a lifeless body, and we say to ourselves, 
well. I know that that's not so-and-so. Because the so-and-so that we knew, the one that we knew was alive. One that, was, that their spirit was in them. That's not them. But Christianity has always been the first to say, yeah, it is. Because that's their body. The separation of their body from their spirit is supremely unnatural. Death is no friend. We don't go to Christian funerals and talk about the circle of life. We realize that the separation of your body from your soul is not what God intended, and you will live out eternity in a body. It's a fact, according to Christianity. Look, this means, among a lot of other things, that your body and your soul are very intimately intertwined. Have you noticed this yet? One affects the other and vice versa. I'll give you an example. If you go back to the Psalms, in Psalm 31, verse 10, David says this in the midst of his confessing his sin. He says, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. What's he mean? What he's saying is a lot of times when you're crushed in your soul, it'll make you not feel good. You ever notice this? That when you get super, super depressed, you kind of, you don't feel good. You got these aches, you know, everything hurts. And sometimes when you don't feel good for a long period of time, I had that terrible flu that was going around for like a month and a half last, last year. And somewhere around February, it was getting pretty bleak on the inside of my head. Why? Because a lot of times the way we feel will affect the way we think. I simply offer this to you because for a lot of us, it's hard to tell which is which. But whenever we're dealing with ourselves, we oftentimes have to deal with both. Dealing with my spirit will oftentimes help my body, and dealing with my body will oftentimes help my spirit. They work together in God's understanding. Secondly, though, it's our bodies that will be resurrected. Secondly, this body, though, is going to be continuous with the one that we have now. That is, it'll be recognizable, only better. <laughs> Big time better, as a matter of fact. Um, and by better, I mean a body that will be like Jesus' body. This is a huge principle for teaching Christian theology on the body. The Bible says, Paul says, that Jesus' body, his resurrected body that he got after he left the tomb for the three days, was something of a prototype. In other words, it was the body that was the first fruits, Paul says, of those that will be raised from the dead that eventually we will be cloaked in when we are resurrected from the dead. And the properties and the qualities that were true of that body are what we are in for. Now suddenly, you'll read these resurrection stories with a little more attention when you start to realize this, because there's a number of things that we know about Jesus' body. First of all, Jesus was recognized. <laughs> they knew who he was, right? They could look at him and could see him. He had physical features, right? Secondly, though, he was very unique, right? Jesus had properties that um, made him capable of things that are not normal, like, oh, I don't know, appearing and disappearing. Whole lot of mystery surrounding that. We don't know exactly what that means. But we can simply say that eventually our bodies will be capable of things that they are not uh, capable of now. In other words, we'll be able to, there'll be things about our bodies that'll be unusual. I like to think about it in terms of our senses. You know, we have five senses right now. Who's to say that in our resurrected bodies we won't have 500 senses? Ways of apprehending God's creation that for, heretofore we never would have imagined. Thirdly, though, Jesus' body is eternal. This confuses a lot of people because a lot of people think that Jesus is a misty spirit right now. He's not. It's always been at the heart of Christian teaching 
that Jesus is still in his body, seated at the right hand of God the Father, right now. That's where he is. He's still in his physical body that he had when he appeared before the disciples. He didn't poof into, into spiritness, right? But here's the thing. We believe that it's been that way for 2,000 years now. And far from his body degrading, it's actually, we believe, constantly improving. Think about that. The body that you get now, that you've got now, starts to live up until college. And then right after college, you start to die. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Let's sing that Christmas song again, shall we? You really, you all of a sudden start to notice that things don't work the way in which they do. And you know, guys, you sort of get this little thing around here. And well, I've, I got I to gotta work harder to stay in shape. What though, what though if we had bodies so that we're constantly improving, capable of endless learning, endless working, endless creativity, endless ingenuity, and never stop doing it? Look, y'all, the... the the future of, Christian, of Christians is a tangible future where you are connected with your body. And I have a theory. There's a part of me that wonders, well, let me, let me tell the story about this. A number of years ago, I got a phone call late at night from a young man who was very much involved in RUF and was going through a very peculiar struggle. It was peculiar to me at that time. Um, he was in a bad state. He had been drinking. Uh, but as we were trying to help him through this sort of state that he was in, I began to look down um, at the, the, the shorts that he had on. And I noticed that his shorts were stuck to his hips. And the reason they were stuck is because he had been bleeding through them. My friend actually had uh, been cutting himself across his hips and his waist for most of the evening. Something he had been doing for, for months before, as a matter of fact. And in the months to follow, as we continued to talk about his cutting... Uh, having now become a regular feature of teen psychology, he would explain to me that it wasn't because he was trying to harm himself. Cutting is not necessarily a suicide attempt, if you've ever known someone who struggled with it. But what he said in not so many words as we began to talk about it was that there was something going on inside of him that was so jumbled and so confusing that he wanted so much to get in touch with something that was tangible Something that was real. Something like the sting of a knife as it cut his skin. Something as, as real as the blood that trickled down his legs from the wound. In other words, it's a desperate attempt to hope that there's something tangible. And, and as I remembered that story in preparing this, I thought to myself, we don't teach this enough. That there may very well be in Christianity sort of a an antidote to this cultural phenomenon of how much people want to be connected to something that's real and knowing that these bodies that God has given us will be ones that will live forever. That changes the way in which I think about my future, doesn't it for you? So that's the first one, your future body. I thought that deserved a little bit of attention since we say we believe in the resurrection of the body. Secondly, though, we also have a future residence. I want to spend the most time on this because we, we get a chance to peep over into the book of Revelation. Now, for many of you, you're immediately creeped out because Revelation, for most of you, is one of those books where you're like, you know, Genesis to Jude, I can kind of handle. You get to that last book of the Bible and all bets are off. 
And most people don't know what to do with this. And the reason why is because they don't realize that John is writing in a very peculiar literary genre that we call apocalyptic. Interestingly enough, the word apocalyptic uh, comes from the word apocalypsis in Greek, which means to reveal something. When you reveal something, you've made a revelation. So the book of Revelation is actually called apocalypsis uh, uh, in Greek. But a lot of people think that it's about the end of the world, doom and gloom, right? Rather, I want to simply say that apocalyptic literature is known by a, a kind of writing that starts to pull off of all kinds of different metaphors. And they mix them all up in, in, up in almost um, kind of wild, very abstract verse. That's what I think John is doing in the book of Revelation. For instance, in the, chapter that James, in the verses that James read, we started talking about this whole idea of a city. It says basically that there is a city, and that city we find out in a couple of verses is wearing a wedding dress. Okay. Last time I checked, cities don't wear wedding dresses. How does that work? Well, that's the point. There's imagery here that John's trying to get across that's beautiful that cannot be explained in these straightforward, very literalistic terms. Now, some of you just heard me say that the Bible is not literal. Okay, please don't freak out. I, we'll take the Bible literal where the Bible intends to be taken literally. But I would submit that the book of Revelation is not intended, intended to be taken that way. John is trying to give us a vivid, beautiful picture of what the life everlasting that the end of the creed talks about. What does that mean? Two things. First, notice that the imagery is that heaven, this is a huge point. In the passage, heaven is actually coming down. It does not describe people as going up to heaven. Look, y'all, it'll change the way you look at the world when you begin to realize it. When the Bible uses the word heaven, it's not talking about a place that is up in space. Heaven, rather, is God's space among us. Granted, it's a space that is out of our vision, out of our immediate sort of sensual vision, but it's no less his space. And the point is, is that the Christian's eternal state is not going to be spent in a vacuum of embodiment, but in a physical place with ground and sky and plants and animals and all of the things that are good about God's creation. In other words, the same things that are true about your body, we also expect will be true about creation. My guess is, is that we will spend time in buildings sort of like this in context in which we are sort of like. <laughs> Got some funny thoughts there. It's an interesting thought. And think of you coming to RUF in heaven. I'm not sure you'd actually take the time when you were there, but that's another story. But I'm simply saying that our future is something that we can expect to work in. You ever thought about that? Well, we work in heaven. Why not? Work is not evil. Work with sin mixed in it is a pain. But work itself is not evil. We'll play. Recreation, a good gift of God. I suspect we'll read. We'll write. We'll study. We'll discover. We'll invent. We'll love. We'll embrace. In other words, all of the things that we do now, only in the unimaginable glory of perfection. Look, y'all, I think one of the reasons why James Cameron has sort of the facility in his mind to create uh, uh, an imaginary world of Pandora that he did in Avatar is because he's a creature created in the image of God. 
And therefore, he has an image of something that he knows should exist. And that I think every creature who is human wants to exist. I think it's a memory trace of what we know we were created to live in. So heaven is coming down, and therefore heaven is going to be a physical place. Secondly, though, and this is so big, I wish I had more time to deal with it. But notice how the tenses shift in the reading, just like in the Philippians passage. Now follow me here for just a second as you look at these verses. John looks and says, there will be no more crying and there will be no more death. Now that's clearly saying that's going to be in the future. But in verse 5, he pictures God as saying what? I am making all things new. Did you catch the tense shift? He's talking about the future, but that God is something that is something that God is doing right now. Same thing in Philippians, by the way. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, but eventually he says we will be transformed. Okay, so which one is it, Paul? Uh, are things already made new, or are they not yet new? Do I wait for something as a Christian, or am I experiencing it now? Right? It's a huge question. And of course, the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Both of those things are true. And what I have to do to you tonight is to introduce you to a little piece of theology, which I know you're going to think to yourself has no application to your life whatsoever, but I promise you it's extremely important. And it and, and, and can bring about a wisdom in your Christian life that you otherwise would never have. And it's an idea that we typically use with this little phrase. You ready? The already and the not yet. In, Christ, in the Christian view of life, this is the way we view life. That it is already and it is not yet. Look, it's easy to state but very hard to sort of put your mind around. The point is this. Jesus has come 2,000 years ago as of now and inaugurated a kingdom what does it mean to inaugurate something? It means to begin it, to sort of finally establish it, to make it sort of um, real for the first time. We are now going through human history where that kingdom is growing, that kingdom is expanding. And so we begin to see all kinds of signs of that kingdom growing. And then one day we expect that he will consummate that kingdom. Does that make sense? The kingdom was inaugurated at Christ, it's continued, at least for 2,000 years now, and one day in the unknown future, it'll be, it'll be uh, consummated, finished, completed, done, perfect, the way he wants it. But I want you to notice that that puts us living in between those two events. You've never thought about this? Death is being pushed back. Sins are being forgiven, but we stress that we will not see the full flowering of that kingdom until he finally comes and fixes it all personally. Look, y'all, the kingdom is already. We can see it. We can taste it. We can see evidence of it. But it's not yet. We wait. We groan. In Ephesians 1, Paul calls our salvation a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance that is yet to come. I love that image. He's like, look, right now you have a deposit where you're drawing off little bits from a bottomless bank account that will only be available to you in full then. That's the idea wrought by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who cares? Why didn't I go to the basketball game tonight, right? 
<clears throat> Look, there is nothing bigger for you. <laughs> I got nervous. Somebody was like, this is a basketball game? And starts, people start filing out. Wanna, you know. <clears throat> this is a huge realization. Because look, I think this means a couple things. And the most important thing is that Christians have a totally unique view of their own lives. Totally unique way of dealing with your life. Look, I get to talk to all kinds of you in different phases of your life, for example. Some of you are really optimistic about your life. You love your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You have good grades. You're attractive to people. Uh, you have good friends. You have good prospects for your future. You hope to have a good career. And sometimes I find myself having to be a little bit of a killjoy with you. Because I have to say, you need to be careful because it may be that you're tempted to put all of your eggs in this earthly basket, right? Others of you come in deeply pessimistic, <laughs> incredibly cynical about your life because it's hard. You haven't found love. Uh, either you're failing at school or you hate your major or your career choice. You struggle with people, how to get along with them. And I find myself in those contexts trying to say that the Christian life purges us of cynicism. There's no place for cynicism in the Christian life. We can't give up in, on anybody if Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, what's the deal? Are you some kind of schizophrenic counselor or something? No. What I'm trying to show is, is that there is in the Christian life, this is my little phrase, I'm not sure it's very good, there is a kingdom dynamic that is always working in you to deal with the temptations that come when you succeed and the heartache that comes when you're down. And it's brilliant for doing it. Look, y'all, let me give an example. For instance, here is one person that comes into my office heartbroken, devastated because their significant other has rejected them, sent them packing. Look, the Christian advice to this person is completely unique. Have you ever thought about this? We've talked about this before. Because the Christian person, the, the Christian view of life comes to that person who feels rejected and says, you know what? You think you feel rejected? I'm here to tell you that God has rejected your soul because of your sin. It's a whole lot worse than you know. <laughs> Some of you are saying, yeah, I'm not going to go see him. Look, but before you allow that to make you despair for your life, know that Jesus was actually rejected by his father so that not only could you be accepted by him ultimately, but so that you could face the temporary rejections here. Does that make sense? In other words, if we don't go ahead and allow ourselves to feel the full force of the pain that we feel, most of us are in denial. We're taking that pain and we're just like, mm. and we push it aside. We don't want to admit it about ourselves. But God looks and says, the second that you begin to own that, you'll all of a sudden realize a glorious truth, and that is that I actually came for people, and I'm going to neutralize that pain. As a matter of fact, I already did it 2,000 years ago. And having neutralized it, I'm going to give you the strength that you can draw on, not just to plow through it, but to actually rescue the very things that you were trying to grasp in the first place. Another person comes into my office in a totally different connection because they've just fallen in love. It's just happened. They're on cloud nine. There's hope. There's encouragement now that he or she is with me, right? To them, I have something kind of different to say. To them, I have to say, you know, you're right. 
You have tasted what we as Christians are in for in Christ. We're in for that, an ultimate love. You think you feel adored and affirmed right now? Just wait until what you see when your bridegroom, Jesus, begins to take notice of you. And, and what he looks at, how he looks at you when he's finished with you. Just wait for that. But be careful. Make sure that you don't mistake the sign for the reality. You see, this is what we do. We look and we say, oh, finally at last, someone who loves me here on earth. But we oftentimes mistake the sign that was supposed to point us to his ultimate love as the ultimate reality. And all of a sudden, we lock on. We dig those possessive fingernails right in there and dare them to leave us. Do I exaggerate? Don't give your soul to your earthly beloved and miss what they're pointing to. What if all of the highs and the lows of your life were simply trying to get you to see where God is in all of this, that you are a person who lives in the already and the not yet? You know, Les, I'm in the midst of this dating relationship, and I'm just not sure whether it's a good thing. Is it good or bad? I can't answer that question because the answer is, well, it's already and not yet. The joy that you experience of knowing that you want to be meaningfully connected to someone, yes, that's good. God created you for that. But your tendency to be careful for yourself that you don't sell your soul to that relationship and say that this is going to be the one condition for me really being happy in life, that's bad. It's already and it's not yet. I already see I've got deposits. I can see a little bit of the kingdom, but it's not all here yet. Look, y'all. In my opinion, this is the picture of Christian sanity. And some of you know what I mean. Because you felt like you're going crazy. Because you've dealt with some of the pain and some of the disappointment that only college can bring you. Stuff I went through in college, I hadn't gone through stuff like that since then. I'm sure there's more ahead of me, but it was hard. There's things that happen here. And folks, if you don't get this, my guess is you're struggling with your spiritual life and wondering what it is that God is up to. Look, but the only answer is that Christians' life everlasting, this is so important, the life everlasting is not about the place. The life everlasting is about the person. Look, y'all, heaven is heavenly, not because it's streets of gold, or even because it's the cessation of pain and sorrow and tears and loneliness, even though it will be all of those things. That's not why heaven is heavenly. Heaven is heavenly because he's there. And because all of the things that I experienced here in life, I got a chance to see through, and I saw what God was up to. My highest joys were getting me ready, getting me ready for a, for a joy that I can't even put that I don't even have an imagination for right now. And my lows were trying to wean me away from putting too much of my eggs in the basket of this life. Suddenly Christians understand what's going on with their lives because of the already and the not yet. I've always thought this was funny. Can't wait to get to heaven. You know, the whole Jesus stuff weirds, weirds me out, but I can't wait to get to heaven. Well, that's not the Bible's version of heaven. <laughs> Because the Bible says it's heavenly because he's there. Look, let me ask you a question. Do you want to receive this? Is this something that you look at and say, I really, I wish I could think that way. 
I wish I could know what that's about. I want to suggest to you that John tells you how in verse 6. Notice what he says. He says, all you got to do is be thirsty. That's it. Come, all who are thirsty. To be thirsty is nothing more than to be curious. To be curious, to look and say, I want to see where this Jesus person is. And all of a sudden, you start to hunt him down. And before too long, you begin to realize it's actually not you hunting him down, it's him hunting you down. That he's been the one that's been working in me. Look, y'all, and if you do, when you do, what happens is you begin to feel like Jesus is clothing you in a wedding dress. (laughs) He's getting you ready. He's getting you ready to be prepared to be loved by him. Look, y'all, the creed ends with one single word. I was so glad that y'all said it tonight. Amen. How appropriate. Y'all, the ancients ended this speech with these words that simply mean this is truly and really what is in my heart. This is true. May it absolutely be so. Look, y'all, so the study of credo, why believing matters, comes down to this question. Can your heart say amen to something like that? May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you give us the ability, the ability, it, 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 it's, it's a sense of being able to say that. Father, we are clouded with papers and exams and longing for a break and for heartache. All kinds of things have crowded in on us. And sometimes it's hard for us to look and see these things and actually think, is that what I'm headed for? And so we need your help. Lord Jesus, would you begin to change us? Would you begin to all of a sudden give us a vision of what you have in store for us? To see our new place. To see our new bodies. But more importantly, to see through those things to see you. Would you do that? If you would work that in us, Lord Jesus, we would, our evening would have been worthwhile. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.